There's a big question about what it is that makes people people. Like, what is it that most sets our species apart from every other species? And that's the sort of the debate that I've been involved in lately. Uh, we call the species Homo sapien. That's an argument in the debate. And it's an argument that it is our sapience, our wisdom, our intelligence, our big brains that most sets our species apart. But other scientists, other philosophers have pointed out that, no, really, most of the time, a lot of the time, we're really not all behaving all that rationally and reasonably. Really, it's our upright posture that sets us apart, or it's our opposable thumb that allows us to do this incredible tool use, or it's our cultural sophistication, or it's the sophistication of language, and so on and so forth. And I'm, I'm not arguing against any of those things. I'm just saying that one thing of equal stature is typically left off of this list, and that's the way that people live their lives in stories. Um, we live in stories all day long. Stories in, you know, most obvious things are fiction stories, novels, TV shows, films, interactive video games. Uh, we daydream in stories all day long. Uh, Estimates suggest that we just do this for hours and hours per day, making up these little fantasies in our head, these little fictions in our heads. We go to sleep at night uh, to rest. The body rests, but not the brain. The brain stays up at night. And what's it doing? It's telling itself stories uh, for about two hours per night, uh, eight or ten years out of your lifetime, composing these little vivid stories in the theaters of our minds. And so... I'm not here to downplay any of those other entries into the what makes us special sweepstakes. I'm just here to say that one thing has been left off of us is the storytelling. It's where we live our lives in stories, and it's sort of mysterious that we do this. We're not really sure why we do this. It's one of these questions, storytelling, that falls in the gap between the sciences and the humanities. So if you have this division into two cultures, and you have uh, the science people over here in their buildings and the humanities people over here in their buildings and they're writing in their own journals and publishing their own uh, book series and the scientists are doing the same thing. You have this sort of division and you have all this area in between the sciences and the humanity, humanities that no one is colonizing. So there's all these questions in the borderlands between these disciplines that are rich um, and relatively unexplored. And one of them is, is storytelling, and it's one of these questions that humanities people aren't going to be able to figure out on their own because they don't have uh, a sort of scientific toolkit that will help them gradually, painstakingly narrow down the field of competing ideas. And the science people don't really see these questions about storytelling as in their jurisdiction. This belongs to someone else. This is humanities territory. We don't know anything about it. What's really needed is a sort of fusion, people bringing together methods, ideas, uh, approaches from scholarship and from the sciences to try to answer some of these questions about storytelling. Because I think what, 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 what really is happening is in storytelling, in the way that humans are so addicted to stories, you have something that is enormous in human life. It's just enormous, and yet we know very, very little about it. There's a real growth area here for new understanding. Um, 
one question is, uh, you know, storytelling is great. Uh, we all love stories. But do we need empiricism, too? Or, or can we let stories run away from us and lose track of uh, empirical reality? Uh, and I think, I think it's certainly uh, a, a danger. Uh, one of my major problems that I've dealt with in my academic career coming out of the humanities was a tremendous frustration uh, to the point of uh, almost paralysis. I was almost angry about it. Uh, with 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 the lack of empirical uh, lack of an empirical foundation for any of the work that gets done in the humanities, so there's all kinds of storytelling. So you have a question about X, Y, or Z, and it's very easy for a talented PhD wielding high IQ person to tell a wonderful and engaging story about it. Uh, and the story is often very credible and very plausible and very good. Uh, but the problem is, is that Scholar B and Scholar C have their own very plausible, excellent uh, stories as well. And so uh, a great deal of my work, especially earlier on in my career, was about just going into the sciences and ransacking them and trying to uh, hijack a lot of the sort of method methodologies that are used to help scientists choose between competing stories. So scientists are telling stories too. It's kind of what a hypothesis is. You have this question and you make up a story about uh, how to uh, account for this uh, phenomenon. Um, the, the advantage that, 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 that sciences has, I think, over the humanities, one of them, is that they have methods for helping them winnow down the field of competing hypotheses. Now, the argument has always been that, yeah, we accept that. The problem is that none of those methods work in the humanities. And that, that idea is kind of bunk. Uh, there's just, it's like saying um, before people went to the moon, like, you know, you can't get, get to the moon because no one's ever been there. Uh, but no one had ever tried, really, before. And so it's not like people had tried desperately to make empirical methods work in the humanities and then failed and then moved on to something easy like string theory. You know, it's not like that. And they put their shoulder into it and then give up. Uh, it's, it's really just a sort of thought habit that this is a field that we're, where it's strictly qualitative, quantitative methods can't uh, work. Um, but that's, that's just kind of empirically false. Uh, you can find a lot of uh, sort of proof of concept type studies that have been done. There's actually quite a lot of empirical work in the humanities. It's quite good. And the main uh, fear people have about the importing empirical methods, scientific methods into the humanities, is that somehow what's special about the humanities would be vaporized. You know, just, it would become, you know, like, I don't know, just like robotics, the literary scholars would come to work in lab coats or something, it would be sterilized. Um, but it's really easy for the two things to coexist. You know, you need good scholarship. You absolutely do. You need good historians and good literary theorists and good literary critics. And none of that work is at all at odds with uh, work that is methodologically scientific. There will be certain questions that can be applied, uh, you know, addressed in a fairly rigorous scientific manner and some questions, you know, that really can't. I got to this place, this sort of uh, in-between place between the sciences and the humanities uh, really close to 20 years ago when I just started out in graduate school. And I went to graduate school uh, in literary studies, English, and I was looking 
uh, I don't know, I, I wanted to be a scholar when I grew up. And a scholar, I thought, uh, was someone who discovered things or like made some sort of small contribution to human self-understanding. Then I got to graduate school. And at the time, gra- uh, the humanities, the academic humanities, were still quite firmly in the grip of postmodernism. Mm-hmm. And every day I go to work uh, as a graduate student and was told by my professors that, that, that okay, we'll, we'll read, we'll write, but it's all kind of hopeless. Uh, the odds of us ever understanding anything are vanishingly small. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a dog chasing its tail uh, forever. And I was frustrated by that. I wanted to try to find something like, like more reliable and more durable answers to the questions I was addressing, which I thought were important questions. And so I started looking around and thinking about, well, how would we do this? You know, what, what, what's a good model for uh, generating more reliable knowledge? And I didn't have to think about it very hard. Well, I said, well, the sciences seem to do this. The sciences seem to uh, do a, a nice job of, uh, you know, they have their, they have their mistakes. They, they backslide. They go in circles now and then. But most people allow that over time there's a gradual uh, improvement in our understanding of the universe uh, that wasn't there before, and humanities, in large part, have have trouble making the same the same claim. So, my career, especially in the early part, was about just kind of seeing how far I could get, applying a more scientific model to the sorts of questions that I wanted to ask about art, those questions I wanted to ask about literature in particular. I saw when I was in graduate school, I saw several problems with the business model in academic literary studies. Uh, Bad theory, bad method, bad attitude, bad uh, sort of ideology. On the bad theory front, what we had was a sort of domination by uh, Freudian theory, psychoanalytic theory, uh, and very hard and rigid versions of social constructivism, this idea that everything is pure nurture and no nature. Uh, I knew those models were out of date, so part of what I was, my work was about was just was updating the model, the theory, to make it consistent with the best thinking in the sciences of, of the mind. Uh, the other problem was a, a problem that I, I discussed a little bit earlier, this idea of, okay, so you have a good theory to guide your research. You have better theory to guide your research, but, and you'll come up, you, you will come up with ideas, but how do you know if your idea is true? So I wanted to uh, see if there was ways of quantifying some of the questions that you uh, approach in the humanities um, and submitting them to statistical analysis and scientific testing and falsification and all of that stuff. Um, So for instance, in the early days, this was in the late 90s, the early 2000s, and so I was doing things like having teams of readers, um, students, and we together we would uh, content analyze uh, folk tales from all around the world. So we get a corpus of folk tales from maybe a hundred different cultures, hundreds of tales from every culture. This would be much easier to do now because you'd have the computer tools to, to automate a great deal of it. We had to go out to the libraries, get the collections, scan them laboriously. Um, and we'd ask questions that were very, very simple and very, very basic. So just for example, what do we want to ask about? Okay. For example, a question. Are female characters underrepresented in literature? Okay. Are there fewer female characters 
in literature. At first glance, just from your, 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 your normal reading, you'd say, yeah, it seems that way. Um, and then you'd say, well, but what about in, I don't know, Elizabethan plays? And what about in folk tales? What about on TV? What about in films? What about in other cultures? What about in other centuries? And so the argument had always been, okay, yes, female characters are underrepresented because of sexism in the West. Okay? So we said, well, how do we, how do we find out if that idea is true? And so what we did was we got this big body of, of folk tales, and we looked to see if we'd find the same relationship. And we had a couple of different ways of looking to see if, whether or not females were underrepresented in those samples. One thing you could do is you'd go through and you'd read tales and have, them, have, have the coders literally, literally code who is the main character. How many characters are there? How many males? How many females? We also had them, uh, we had the computer count pronouns. Uh, he, him, versus her, she, etc. And what we found was a fairly strong, don't like to use the word falsification, but we found very, very little evidence for the sort of Western patriarchy argument. Because what we found basically all around the world was that female characters were underrepresented literally across the board. We did not find cultures where you had parody. We did not find cultures where you had more uh, leading female characters than leading male characters. So oftentimes you have a very simple question like this that seems like, I don't know, this is the humanities, it's about books, it's about words, and there's no way of ever knowing the answers to these questions for sure except by arguing about it forever. But really, with a little bit of elbow grease and a little bit, bit of ingenuity, there's a way to go out and get something like an answer to this question. Um, I, I think the, the tension between the humanities and the sciences is old, and it's ongoing. So you have this two cultures clash that I think has been ameliorated in some areas and people on the sciences side and the humanities side have all been sort of trained to say the right things now, but the tension is still really there. And I think I'm in a somewhat interesting position to evaluate the arguments on both sides. So the people in the sciences are, are, are frustrated and they think the people in the humanities are sort of thick-skulled and uh, recalcitrant. And people in the humanities think that the sciences are cocksure and hubristic and colonistic. They have its fear that what the sciences really want is to take over the whole shebang. <laughs> they, want, they want their science building and they want the humanities building. Um, and I do think that the people in the sciences, people in, in my camp even, could do a better job of talking about things um, and, and dealing with some of the concerns. I think the concerns on the humanities sides are one, this feeling of, again, evaporation, that if the sciences come in, what science really does is explains away magic, you know? And the humanities, and art especially, can sort of be viewed as the last bastion of magic, this unexplainable thing, this truly mysterious thing. We don't know how it works. We don't know why it works. We just know it works. And... So I think part of the reason they haven't wanted that wanted science involved in this effort to understand art is this feeling that it would be explained. And if it's explained, it would be explained away. Um, and then there's just, there's, there's an awful lot of, I, I think, misunderstanding. Um, and it's basically an either-or mentality. 
So you can either have scientific tools, approaches, and methods, or you can have traditional scholarship, where, of course, what's really needed is just a toolkit that it has both things. And so you, and you'd have certain problems that would yield to this set of tools, and you had other problems that would be more appropriate for that sort of tool. Um, another major concern in the humanities has to do with determinism and reductionism, the sense of reductionism. Uh, the idea, again, that things would be, that, like, something like Shakespeare, would be uh, dismissed as a uh, drama of selfish genes, you know, just boil down to selfish genes. What's the answer to Shakespeare? Oh, it's selfish genes. Um, and I think part, part of what's going on there is a confusion about what the word reductionism means, um, where, where the word has that word, has that sense of reducing, that this sort of grandeur or greatness would be reduced, um, where that's not really what scientists mean by that. You know, reduction means explanation, you know, it means explaining something. Uh, so I don't think that's really a, such a scary uh, concept. But I do think that there's, that, that there's been an effort from the science side possibly to conquer the opposition. And it hasn't gone very well. And I think probably uh, a stronger diplomatic push uh, is possibly called for. And I was certainly in the, in the, in the uh, warrior camp earlier on in my career. I wrote some uh, angry things, angry young man type books, uh, manifestos. Um, and it was, it was nice, and I don't take anything back. Um, but it, it was unstrategic. You know, people got their, got their hackles up, and they got their claws out too. Um, and nothing really happened. Was I actually too pugnacious in, in my earlier work? I think to some extent, yes, I was. I do. The question is, what do you hope to achieve? And in my case, what I hoped to achieve was actually a sea change. In, in the sort of manifesto type book that I wrote around 2008, I said that what I was aiming for was total disciplinary upheaval, in quotes. So I was going for a revolution. Um, and I argued the case uh, just that boldly the whole way through, um, and with quite a lot of uh, polemical, uh, polemical strength. And it was a very, it was a very uh, tough polemic. Um, but I, I'm proud of that book. But it didn't achieve much. It did not produce total disciplinary upheaval. Um, what it did was strongly marginalized me within the field. So then, if, you know, a few years later, I wrote another book, um, my most recent book. And in that book, I, it's still about the same questions about science and art. Uh, it's about the relationship. And I just, I just wasn't, you know, as aggressive as I was before. And it was fine. I got to make the same points. But people didn't see me as scary. People didn't see me as off-putting. I, I didn't sound like the type of guy that you maybe wouldn't want to have in your department because he was too much of a, a, a you know, just too, too, too aggressive. Um, and so I think that book will do a lot more to uh, push the sort of agenda that I'm interested in. Uh, playing nice in that case seemed to have been a better strategy um, to, for getting what I wanted. If I was to reorganize, if I was to build my own uh, humanities department, my, my own English department, 
uh, from scratch? What would that department be like? Well, you know, a lot of it would be very similar to how it is now. You would still read. You know, you'd still take the read the great authors and the new authors, and you would still have literary criticism and literary theory. Uh, but you would also have uh, courses in human psychology. You'd have to, you'd have courses that address this big question: Why do we even have literature at all? Why do we have stories at all? Why do we care so much about fiction? These are the kind of things that are so big and basic and so obvious that. Most people in literary uh, studies don't even think about them. Or if they do think about them in a sort of a vague sort of way. Uh, I would have courses that were cross-listed with uh, the math department. You know, basic classes on statistics, basic classes on uh, research methods for the social sciences. Um, A lot of the questions that literary scholars are addressing are really just very, very basic psychology questions that can be addressed in a lab. So again, just to give one more little example, uh, my colleagues and I, including Joseph Carroll uh, and a couple of psychologists, um, were interested in some questions about how people respond to literature. There's a whole field of literary studies called reader response literary studies. And reader response is what it sounds like. It's like basically, how do people respond to literature? What happens? You know, like what, what's going on in their heads? Uh, what's going on with them emotionally? And the way that work has typically been done is by a scholar sitting in an armchair and telling you the answer. This is how people respond. But really, it's an empirical question. It's a, it's a lab question. And so what we did was we you know, asked people. We got this in concert with this team of psychologists. We got people, uh, avid readers, um, to tell us how they responded uh, to these literary works. And we were able to get a whole bunch of data and answer a whole bunch of questions about you know, this really basic question. What is going on with people as, as, as they read and respond to literature? Okay, so one of, the, one of the big questions revolves around the question, I suppose, of whether or not the author is dead. So this is this famous sort of mantra, this idea that the author is dead. Um, and one thing that sort of suggests is that the author doesn't have very much power. That power resides with the reader. And so in most literary theory courses, you'd learn that response to literature is highly idiosyncratic. You know, it's going to strongly reflect your biases, whether you're a man or a woman, how old you are, what your background is, and so, and so on and so forth. And there's a lot of truth in that, and we did find that. But for the most part, what we found in a diverse uh, survey of, I think, maybe 600 people was the main story is by far uniformity. People agree on what a, what a, what's going on in a story. They agree on what a kind of a story means. They have the same sort of emotional reactions to the characters. They hate the same characters. They like the same characters. So what you have, and if you have a big group of people all reading the same book, what you're seeing is not a, a diversity of response, a great deal of idiosyncratic response. What you're seeing is a a mental and emotional attunement among those readers. Now, from a common sense point of view, I can see a lot of people listening to this and saying, well, of course, I knew this already. But we didn't know it already. This was a question that was very much in dispute, and most people in the, in the academic humanities would have voted the other way, more toward uh, idios- idiosyncratic response. Um, so th- that would be one example. The question why fiction has very much been on my mind lately, and it's one of these things 
that again is so big and so obvious that most people just don't think about it. It kind of seems obvious to people that human beings love stories. But if you think about it, it's not at all obvious that human beings should love stories, especially fictional stories. You know, if you imagine us, you know, as hunter-gatherers out in the savanna, life is very hard, uh, narrow margins, and you'd think that it'd be better going, better off going without it. Um, it's a lot of time, a lot of energy spent on story. So, what might the benefit be uh, to outbalance the costs? Uh, and there's a whole bunch of different competing theories for this idea, and not a lot of data yet to help us decide between them. The main thing about these different theories for why we have fiction is that they're largely compatible with each other. It's not an either-or situation. So if you ask yourself, what's my hand for? Um, you'd say, my hand is for, uh, it's a tool that I use to grab stuff. It's a tool I use to communicate. It's a tool I use to reach out and caress people. It's a tool I use to reach out and punch people. It's a multi-purpose tool. It does a whole bunch of different things. And the same is probably true of story. Uh, story has probably been shaped by different evolutionary pressures to do different uh, things. Um, so, what, but, but one of the ideas that I've been thinking about a lot is whether you can get a hypothesis about the likely function of fiction, or one likely function of fiction, uh, by focusing on the form of fiction. What is, what is fiction like formally? And so one of the most interesting things to me about stories is that we think of stories as this wildly creative art form, and, 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 and it is. But within that creativity and that diversity, you find a lot of conformity. They're very, very predictable. So no matter where you go in the world, no matter how different the people seem, no matter how hard their lives are, the people tell stories universally. And universally, the stories are more or less like ours, the same basic human obsessions and the same basic structure. The structure comes down to, uh, you know, stories have a character, the character has a predicament or a problem. They're always problem-focused, and the character tries to solve the problem. That's, the, in its most basic terms, that's what a story is. It's a problem-solution narrative. And so, why? Why are stories that way? Now, on one hand, you can, it, it may be obvious to you, again, that stories are that way, that they're problem-focused. That's the first thing you would learn like in your first day of, of creative writing class. You get there, your teacher would say, hey, your story has to have a problem, a crisis, a dilemma, otherwise no one's interested. But if you think about it, it's not at all obvious that stories should be that way. You might really expect to find stories that really did function as portals into hedonistic paradise. Paradises where there was no problems, where pleasure was infinite, and you never ever find that. So why are, why are stories so, so trouble-focused? And there's a couple, you actually have quite a bit of convergence among scholars and scientists who are looking at this from an evolutionary point of view. And what they're sort of saying is that stories may function as kind of virtual reality simulators, where you go and you simulate the big problems of human life, and you enjoy it, but you're kind of having a mental training session at the same time. And there's actually some kind of interesting evidence for this, that these simulations might actually help people perform better on certain tasks. So in the same way that you know that children's make-believe uh, helps them uh, hone their social skills, 
It seems to be true of adult make-believe, too. So if adult make-believe is novels and films, um, it seems to be that entering into those fictional worlds and working through those fictional social dilemmas actually does, as hard as it may, 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 may be to believe, actually does enhance our social skills, our, social, uh, our, our emotional intelligence, our empathy. Um, so that's kind, of a, that's kind of a neat finding, so that, that maybe stories have a function as a sort of simulation of the big problems of life that actually help us cope better with those, those problems when we, when we do experience them. Without stories that are, are an exception to this rule, um, you will find them. But you'll have to sort of scrape your brain to find them, uh, to find examples. And there'll be very much examples or, or uh, exceptions that prove the rule. There'll be extreme statistical outliers. So you'll find stories that don't have that structure, that, that, that character facing a problem and attempting to solve it. Um, you'll note, though, that most of those examples, the things that will spring readily to mind, are not the things that most people consume. So they have a difficult stories that are that, that depart from that basic structure have a tremendous amount of difficulty finding audience. They typically find an elite academic style audience. So, for instance, Joyce's Finnegan's Wake or something. You know, it explodes the structure of story. But Joyce, of course, was setting out on purpose to explode the structure of story. So there's a lot of 20th century writers who realized, holy cow. I'm working inside a prison. I'm working inside the prison of this structure, and I'm going to blow it up, and I'm going to make everything new. And these were really interesting as uh, artistic experiments, and uh, I adore some of them. Uh, but th but but they're exceptional, and 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 importantly, they do not do a very good job of seizing human attention and riveting human attention. People read them when they're when the when the professors force them to read them. Yeah, I, I have two daughters, and um, the question is. What would I advise them if they, if they wanted to uh, pursue uh, study in the, in the humanities? Um, I, I'd be for it. I'd be for it. Uh, the more interesting question for me is what, and I often get this question. Um, I get this question in my email box uh, a couple times a week probably from some student out there who's wondering, it's like, you know, I, I, I like your work. I'm impressed by your work, and I want to do the same thing. I want to tie together humanities work and scientific work. I have these questions about literature, or about painting, or about music that I'd like to pursue from a scientific point of view. Where do I go? Where do I go for a good undergraduate degree? Who can advise me in a PhD uh, program? And those are sort of heartbreaking letters to get because there's not very many good places to send them. And typically, uh, I have to say with regrets, there's a couple of people I can mention, but after that, I have to say, well, really, um, if you are in between the humanities and sciences, the best way to go is to go to the sciences because you will not get pushback on, these, on, this, on, this, on this path of inquiry from people in cognitive science or people from neuroscience or people from psychology, but you will face quite a bit of resistance probably. If you if you try to go at this from a, uh, an academic humanities uh, program. Mm -hmm.